through the letters of Paul in the New Testament, letters both to individual people and to churches, I get the sense that the Apostle Paul was a man not easily overcome by his emotions. When Paul, uh, when you read about Paul and you get a picture of his life, and when I think about Paul, I think about the man who was stoned and left for dead outside of the city of Lystra, and instead of being overcome by discouragement and and fear for the threats that were, were forced against his life, what does he do after he's stoned and left for dead? It's like it never even happened. He gets up, he goes back into the city and continues to preach the gospel. When I picture Paul, I, I think about the man who, who stood confidently before the Jewish religious leaders and just simply laid out the truth of God that, that both Jew and Gentile alike are saved in the same manner not by some outward right like circumcision, but rather by the grace and mercy of God. When I, when I picture the Apostle Paul, I, I picture the man who stood toe-to-toe with the smartest men in Athens and using what they already knew, he proclaimed the grace of God to them. I picture the man who stood face-to-face with Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And instead of being overcome by the emotion of fear, what does he do? He boldly teaches him about Jesus. When I think about Paul and the life of Paul, I think about the man who endured persecution and hardship and shipwreck and storm and viper bites, never being overcome by emotion. But then you get, then you get to the end of his life. And you get to his letter to his son in the faith, a young man named Timothy. And it, it seems like he's let all of that go. And he allows himself to be overcome with emotion. It's about 62, 63 AD, and Paul has already survived uh, being on trial and a house arrest, but now now he's being arrested and chained up like a common criminal. Now he's sitting in real prison. All of his co-workers in the gospel, or almost all of them, have abandoned him. The only person left with him is Dr. Luke, the man who wrote the gospel that we've been covering so far this year, and also the book of Acts. Paul admits that at this point, His life is coming to an end. It's about time that God is going to call him home and give him the crown of everlasting life. But before he does that, Paul has some advice for a young pastor, a man who is going to carry the gospel for the next generation. He has some advice that he wants to pass on to Timothy. And the second letter to Timothy that Paul writes kind of reads like Paul's last will and testament. He's writing or he's dictating this letter from prison. If you know anything about Roman prisons, these prisoners, they were shackled. And those shackles were chained to a wall behind them. So every time that Paul is speaking, dictating these these emotional words to to young Timothy, you can hear the the clinks of those chains as his hands are moving around. With with every word, the chain clinks, and you you feel the emotion and the care and the concern that, that Paul not only has for Timothy and his ministry, but for the whole church of God. And the biggest concern, or one of the biggest concerns that Paul has for the church of God here on earth, it all kind of centers around this concept of what the agenda of the church is. And really it centers around this age-old question, did God really say? This is a question that Satan used to overturn the world in the Garden of Eden. That's the very question that Satan used to, to trick Adam and Eve. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree that's in the garden? The intent of that question by Satan was to 
to try to instill and plant seeds of doubt in Adam and Eve's hearts, to make God seem like this overbearing, fun-sucking ogre who didn't want Adam and Eve to enjoy the fullness of life, at least the fullness of life in the way that Satan saw it. So he asked, did God really say? And unfortunately, those seeds of doubt worked. Adam and Eve forsook the life that God had intended them to have in the garden, life of a perfect relationship with him, for a life that Satan promised that ultimately ended up empty. And now after all of the work that Paul had done as Christ's missionary to the world, he's really concerned that this same question is going to erode the foundation of the church and plague God's people. And he's right to think so. Because he had seen this question work terror in churches all along. But he watched as this question made people more concerned about about external rights rather than internal faith in Jesus. He watched as this question made people think that, that worldly knowledge was more important than wisdom from God that they called that these people would call foolish. So out of concern that this question was going to wreak havoc on the church of God, Paul says this. He says, a time will come, Timothy, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves men or teachers who teach what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Gosh, when you hear what Paul wrote to Timothy in the first century, doesn't it sound a whole lot like he's writing, like he's writing to the 21st century? And not just about the 21st century world, but unfortunately about the 21st century church. Because here's the thing, Satan, Satan doesn't change his tactics very much. That question, did God really say, it's basically been the question he's asked all throughout the centuries. He just puts a new spin on the lies that he's spewing. Does God really say, maybe looks like how postmodernity has, ro- has robbed not only the world, but also some in the church of this concept of absolute truth. A truth today is not absolute, but it's subjective, or so we're told, that truth is determined largely by who you are, and where you live, and the culture in which you live, and the context and the setting. You determine individually, according to the world, and even some within the church, you determine individually what church is. And to even cling to a notion of absolute truth is pure foolishness. And morality has gone much the same way as truth, hasn't it? No longer exists in our world this concept of a a standard right and wrong. Instead, right and wrong is determined by what you want, and how you feel, and where you live. And no one, no one, not even a book, can determine what is right and wrong for you. You get to determine that. You want to have sex outside of marriage? Great. Go for it. Marriage is a government institution. You can't let a book tell you anything different. You want to have sex with someone who is of the same sex as you or of the same gender as you. And we'll get to the whole gender issue in a minute. You want to do that? You're a man who wants to have sex with a man? Go ahead. Ball's in your court. You're a woman who wants to have sex with a woman? Go for it. Ball's in your court. You want to kill an unborn child for reasons that, that go from convenience to financial hardship? Well, the government allows it, so why don't you? And then you have this whole idea of gender that has really become a, a hot-button issue the last, I don't know, decade, but especially in the last five years, where 
where no longer is gender something that is assigned to you, we would say by God, something that is assigned to you at, at your conception, that is, that is a biological constant that is not only determined by external genitalia, but also by X and Y chromosomes that you have, right? No longer is gender defined in this way, but rather it is, it's fluid. It's all about how you feel. If you're a man who, who feels like a woman, then you can be a woman. If you're a woman who, who feels like a man and thinks like a man, then, then you're a man. Did God really say? It turns out Satan, while his wording has changed a little bit, his question really hasn't. And his question, and the end goal of that question, has remained the same, to instill doubt in the hearts of God's people and drive them away from the absolute truth of God's word and by extension driving the church away from from the very thing that it's supposed to be about. So what are we to do? What are we to do as as the people of God when we end up wrestling with this question, did God really say? What do we do when our faith is shaken in the authority and the, the truth of the word of God? Well, Paul, he, he lays that out for us. Well, before we get to what Paul lays out and how we are to deal with this, I, I just want to put this in front of you. The psalmist, he, he tells us that we as God's people are to hate every wrong path. And one of the things that I think probably the thing that I hate the most in this world is Satan. I hate what Satan does to the world. I hate what Satan does to me and what I watch him do to all of you. Because Satan is good. Not good in the way that scripture defines as good, but Satan is good at what he does. And to think of him as anything less than good at what he does would make you out to be an utter fool. Because Satan is pure evil. Satan is very powerful, far more powerful than you and I can ever even imagine. And he is clever enough to strike God's people right exactly where he knows how to get them. The way that Satan instills doubt in your hearts using this question, did God really say, is to attack one of the greatest gifts that your God has given you. The ability of human reason. The ability to think deeply. The ability to wade through deep concepts. Well, Satan knows that's one of the best gifts that your God has given you. And so what he does is attack and attack. An attack, and he uses that against you. And the thing, the thing is, when, when it comes to doubt, when it comes to doubting the truth of God's word, or doubting the truth of, of God, or, or doubting God at all, it doesn't take empirical evidence or some authoritative source to get you to try to turn away from God. All it takes, all it takes is a single speck of doubt. And when Satan, when Satan gets in there and he twists and he turns and he, he tills that soil of your heart to get that doubt in there, well, it doesn't take long for you to turn. So what are we to do when that seed of doubt has been planted? This is where Paul's answer comes in key. He says, a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. To suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves, teachers who teach what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn a, a, away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But as for you, Paul says, but as for you, don't let human reason be the master of your faith. Instead, make faith the master of your human reason, the gift that God has given you. 
But as for you, don't be deceived by, by popular philosophies and, and false teachers and their teachings which change like the wind. But as for you, don't let the doubts of Satan erode the faith that your God has given you in the, in the trustworthiness of his word. But as for you, Paul says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, some of you here, as I, as I look around the room this morning, some of you here had the blessing of being raised in a, in a Christian home with parents who brought you up in the Word of God, with parents who taught you the importance of things like prayer and devotional life and church and Bible study, parents who taught you that when you get up in the morning, you pray and thank God for the gift of life, that, that every time you sit down and have a meal, you pray and thank God for all of the blessings he has poured out in your life. When you go to bed at night, you pray and ask God for his providential care and protection. What a blessing that is to be brought up in a house like that where literally from infancy you've known the scriptures. But as I also look around, I, there are people here for whom Christianity is a relatively new thing where for some of you, you are encountering the deep truths of God's word for the very first time in your life. And you're in your spiritual infancy. But look, much like my son Asher who who soaks up things like a sponge and is constantly learning something new every day. You are, are constantly absorbing these truths of God's word and you are growing, maturing from, from a, a spiritual infant to, to a spiritually mature brother and sister in Christ. And regardless of where you fall on this spectrum, regardless, you and I can all rejoice in the same thing, that our God has brought us here together this morning for a reason. And that reason is he has given us all a childlike faith. Now, having a childlike faith is different than, than just believing like a child. Having a childlike faith is nothing other than simply trusting in God. Simply trusting that what he says to you is true. A childlike faith is a faith that, that hears those doubts that Satan is trying to plant in your heart with questions like, does God really say? And it pays them no mind. And instead, just simply trust that what God tells you in his word is true. What a beautiful thing that is to have a childlike faith. But as the people of God, how can we be sure? How can we be sure, especially in a world where truth, especially objective truth is attacked, how can we be sure that we can trust the word of God? Well, Paul says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. Now, I could tell you that you could trust the word of God because your parents taught you the word of God, or you could trust the word of God because I, as your pastor, stand behind the word of God, but it's only going to get you so far. Really, really, you should trust the word of God because of who stands behind that word, fully stands behind it. It's the source of that word. It's God, the God who created this world, the God who created all of you, the God who is absolutely trustworthy because he is all wise and all powerful and all good, the God whom you can inherently trust. And I could stand up here this morning and I could give you all sorts of apologetic defenses about, about why you should trust the word of God, about because it's internally validating or because of this historical witness that exists for it. But I, I just want to give you one this morning. If you want to know if you can trust the word of God, if you want to know that the word of God is, is authoritative and actually has meaning and purpose for your life, you need look no further than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
You guys know who Tom Arnold is? He's the former chair of history at one of the world's most prestigious universities, the University of Oxford in Cambridge. Arnold said this. He says, there is no other event in the course of human history for which more evidence exists than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no other event in the course of human history for which more evidence exists than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus, the embodiment of God, the word of God made flesh, did something that only God could do. Be raised from the dead, to rise from the dead. Therefore, if you want to try to disprove the authoritative truth of Scripture, if you want to try to disprove the claim, the sole claim on truth that the Word of God has, do you know what you have to do? You have to fundamentally dismantle and disprove the resurrection from the dead, an event for which there is more history and more evidence than anything else that has ever happened in our world. If you want to disprove the truth of God's word, you have to disprove the resurrection. And guess what? For centuries, people have tried and failed. You can't do it. The word of God, the thing that makes the word of God different is not just its source, but what it proclaims, this absolute truth. And God gives you this truth in a way that is accessible, a way that you can reason through, a way that you can understand. And this is incredibly important as it comes to, the, to dealing with the realm of our eternity and our salvation. Paul says that, that all scripture is God-breathed and is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, when you look out at the world, there's a lot you can learn about God. I talked about this a little bit in the children's sermon. When you look out at the world, there's a lot you can learn about God. You can, you can see that there's a beauty and an order to the way that things function and move together that all points to the existence of some sort of, of higher and bigger and powerful being that put all this into existence. But when you look out at the world, you also see that things don't always function the way that they should, right? That there's a certain level of brokenness to the world that, that no matter how hard we try, we can't fix it. And there's evidence of this in our own hearts. And we come up with all sorts of solutions to try to, to rectify these issues. But these solutions leave us feeling nothing other than guiltier and emptier and more crushed under the weight of these, these solutions that, that they impose. And it's only when, through the truth of God's word, that your eyes are opened, that you're able to see what the solution to these problems really are. It's only when, through the word of God, that God opens your eyes, that you'll be able to understand who God really is. Because by nature, you and I understand that whatever God exists, prior to him revealing himself to you in his word, whatever God exists hates when you do bad things. It's when you do what the Bible calls sin, right? This is why you feel guilty. This is why, even before you knew God, you had a conscience that spoke and yelled and screamed at you when you did something you shouldn't. That leads you to, to think and to understand that whatever God does exist, he's a God of retribution and wrath and justice, and he is going to get even with you. And it's not, and it's, it's not, until, it's not until God comes to you, a broken sinner, and reveals himself in his word that you begin to understand that God is a God who hates sin. He is a God of wrath and justice and retribution, but he's also a God of love. A God who loves you so much that he was willing to give up that which he loved most to fix your problem. 
He was able to give his one and only son and nail to him every single one of your doubts and fears and concerns and evil and sin and put them all to death to win for you something that you could never win on your own. Forgiveness, eternal life, life with God forever. That's the truth that scripture proclaims. That's why it's able to make you wise for salvation. It's a truth that can be found nowhere else, in no other manual, in no other book, in nothing else that we come up with. The thing, though, is that Scripture, the Word of God, is not just useful for for pointing you to, to your eternity, which we all look forward to. We all look forward to the time when we don't have to deal with this broken world anymore and we get to enjoy bliss with God. But, But God still has tasks for us to do in this life. And so the word of God is not just useful for pointing you to your eternity. It's also useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Incredibly important. It's the word of God that shows you what it means and how to live a God-pleasing life on this side of heaven. It's the word of God that corrects your sinful ways with the goal of improving in your walk of faith with God. The word of God is is like your own spiritual tutor that educates and trains and disciplines day after day after day. And because we know how powerful the word of God is, God wants you to drive back to it. To drive back to things like worship on Sunday where you can find comfort and within a community of God's people who are struggling along with you. To drive back to things like Bible study and prayer, this open and constant communication with God. Because God's word, every time it is preached, every time it is taught, every time it is read, is powerful and effective. Because we understand how powerful and effective this word is, because we understand that it is this word that not only created saving faith in your heart, but strengthens and upholds this faith as you struggle with the doubts that Satan is trying to instill in you, because you know how powerful this word is, God gives you this charge. Preach the word. It's not just for pastors. Preach the word. That word that Paul uses, keruso, it's it just means proclaim something aloud, to shout it. Right here, the Apostle Paul sets the agenda for Christ's church on earth. That the church is not supposed to be a social club. Though, though, on account of the gospel, as we are united with faith in Jesus, Deep and meaningful relationships exist. But the church doesn't exist as a social club. The, the church isn't supposed to busy itself with a whole bunch of programs and the guise of under the guise of preaching the word. The church is supposed to be about one thing and one thing alone. It is to have one agenda to preach the word. And all of it's true. That our agenda as the body of Christ, who is the church, is to take the gospel and serve it neat to a world that lives with watered-down truth. Brothers and sisters, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Boldly proclaim that word that you have become convinced of because of God that is true. Go and preach the word to those who are filled with doubts, the same doubts that maybe you have had throughout your life. Go and preach the word to people who are sinners like you, people who don't know that a God who loves them exists. Preach the word and point them to the cross. Point them to the place where the gospel and grace and God's justice and mercy powerfully collide to win for the world forgiveness and eternity and life. 
Go and preach the word. And when you encounter that age-old question from Satan, did God really say? Understand and know that you're prepared to answer. So did God really say? Yeah, he did. God grant that in his holy son's name. Amen.